I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are a product of the times, and these are bloodthirsty times. The fear of the sleepless nights. When and where would the Night Stalker strike again? Convicted serial killer Richard Ramirez seemed to relish the concept of evil. Once upon a time, a lot of folks in the state of California viewed the one-time Texas altar boy as evil's human embodiment. Perfect world most people seek shall never come to pass, and it's going to get worse. He had terrorized much of greater Los Angeles by entering homes through unlocked doors or windows. Authorities say he raped, robbed, and killed many of his victims. Most were in the San Gabriel Valley. Do you admit to being evil, Richard? We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Guilty of murder. Thirteen murders. Guilty of rape. Eleven sex crimes. Guilty of burglary at the residence and dwelling house. 19 additional felonies. Guilty. Guilty on all counts. Welcome back to Series 6 of I Could Murder a Podcast. We have crept down the creepy pathway of the wood, jumped the wire fence, and we are in Boston Sound. Ben, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. Series 6, we should probably know what we're doing by now. I should probably know what we're doing by now. And I feel like I'm there. Yeah? Yeah. This is your series? This is my series. I'm so excited. Thank ben, you. do you believe that? Ben? Ah! Oh! It's my series! Cut it, Dan, are you, uh, are you well and do you believe this is the series for Ben to really come out of his shell? I'm really excited for Ben, particularly. It's my redemption. Not for the podcast, just for him. Yeah, that's oh. nice. But welcome back to The Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, The boys. Cabin in the Woods, the Boston Ooh. sound. Hasn't changed much since no. we... These woods don't change. Wow. 
Sorry about that. So Ben, you're going to come out of your shell this series. You're kind of yeah. like, like a snail that's half been stood on. Sorry? So, I was thinking more like a moth into the, the butterfly. A moth into a butterfly? That doesn't yeah. happen. Does that not happen? This is your series. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to smash it. Smash a it, moth smash into it. a butterfly would be yeah. an interesting thing. Maybe well, you're like a moth without the sand on its wings. Th that's magic dust, isn't it? Helps them fly. The magic dust that helps them fly, yes, yeah. like Peter Pan. So we've been away, but we haven't been away. We've been doing some Minnesota, we've been doing some extra content, spooky stories. Mm. Um, ben, what did, you, what did you think of all those things that we did? It was exciting. It was it was interesting to go to London. I don't usually get out of my hometown, so that was nice. And uh, yeah, just to try something new was enjoyable. You don't remember a close? Um, no, no, I'm not. Flaky. <laughs> Sorry? I said flaky. You said that the other week, and I really <laughs> didn't know what you were talking about, because I've been pretty good lately. Have you? Yeah. You get guilted into doing, turning up yeah, to things. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, we've been very busy. We did some special episodes, Spooky Stories. We also did the main channel Minnesotas as well, which were, were very enjoyable. We've also seen a massive increase in our audio listener, mm. listenership. listenership. So yeah, thank you so much uh, to everyone that is joining. Just to let you know, we are also a visual platform. Yeah, and we also dipped our toes into the live stream. Just dodged Ben's poo sticks in there. But um, yeah, that was a good laugh. And I think we might try and do them every so often now because we do enjoy it. It's nice to talk to you guys and yeah. have a glass of Every wine. so often is not too committed. No. We're not, you know. Yeah, no, because I know you don't, you're afraid of that. Well, commitment is oh, not the same word. I'm like, what's that? <laughs> But yeah, well, ever so often, yeah, not too much because it gets yeah. a bit same. We don't need to get bored of us, do we? <laughs> Sick of us. <laughs> Tired of us. And it is almost a time for a celebration. It's almost our second birthday. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Still a baby. Still a baby, yeah. We're growing. We're toddling, toddling. I'm just a baby. Let's see? That was just a podcast speaking. It's a meme. Play the meme, Bunch. I'm just a baby. <laughs> But you still had to say, okay, mum. I did you, baby. We didn't think we'd get a hip end, did we? <laughs> we? We definitely didn't. We definitely didn't. Your guys' support has taken us here. So thank you so much for your support. And uh, we'll continue to deliver this kind of content. Yeah. And speaking of this kind of content, this series, we've sat down. And I think on paper, this could be on paper our best series yet. Ooh, that is a claim. I think it's probably second or third. Yeah? Okay. No, no, I, don't, I do think this. There's a lot of, like we say quite regular, big hitters, but we are starting this series off with a, a huge hitter, a mm. case that we've been requested many a time. Are you going to do it? Why haven't you done it yet? Oh, God, it's boring. Do this one. And that's why we thought we should bloody well do it. Yeah. We're losing interest out of these guys. This case, Ben, are you excited to cover it? Yeah, really big case, one that people have wanted to see and hear for a long, long time. And this is a particularly dark one. They, they often are. Yep, true crime. But yeah, no, excited to excited to jump into this one. So this case is Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Also goes by the Screen Door Intruder, the Walk-In Killer, the Valley Intruder, Peeping Rich, Rick the Peep, Ricky the Thief, and Fingers. And also, obviously, with the name uh, Richard, you can abbreviate to Dick. So Peeping Dick, Dick in the Peep, Dick the Peep, Dicky the Thief, and Dick Fingers. Not Dick Fingers. It's not. Good. Well, or Dick Ram, Dicky Ram. Um, could also be an abbreviation of his name there, but it's up to you. Uh, go whichever. We're probably going to stick with Dicky Ram for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we're not. And also we want to say a big thank you to uh, Gully Garms, who again, mm. it, it, they have curated us this series. They've put clothes together to go with a particular case yeah. for the visual listeners. We're, we're, we're a bit more matching rather than... Um, we are. Even I can see that, yeah. Even you with those eyes. Ohio State, 
also Ohio State. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the, the clothing's going to be linked to the case, the era, the feel, the vibe. So thank you very much to Spencer over at Gully Gums for that. And also, we're going to have a code this series. Me and Ben are going to have a little bit of a battle. Mm. Do you fancy a little bit of a battle? I'm always up for a battle. A little bit of a battle. Uh, it's going to be using two different codes on their store, which will be Kill Ben and Praise Tom. The two co- <laughs> no, it's Kill Tom as well. So Kill Ben and Kill Tom, and you know, go over there. We obviously go out for very out there clothing, but for just secondhand vintage clothing, it's 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 great. It's the best. Here's the, yeah. the best. It's we, the best. We were using Gully Garments way before the podcast as well, so it's been someone that we're very happy to be associated with. And Spencer sorting us out. So thank you very much, Gully Garments, and go over and use our codes. Kill Tom, Kill Ben, and that code not only will it you know like fuel the rivalry yeah, in the battle even uh, more. You'll get thirty percent off. In the store, and that wow. is, that's a percentage, Ben. That's a big percentage. It's nearly a third, isn't it? Nearly. 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 Right. Some people round up. Some people do. Yeah. You're very right about that. But Ben, <laughs> so Ben, you're a man of you're a man of many words. Thanks. Sometimes the words don't make sense, or they don't mean what you think they mean. Yeah. But you've 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 thrown a little quote in here. Which is this going to be a, a theme for this series? It could be. I mean, with the we're aware of the cases we're going to cover, and there are some very quotable cases. So as with any big case, there is a lot to go through. Richard will later blame any, well every possible external influence on his life for the monster that he would go on to become. And with a lot of today's focus, we're going to talk about his childhood and his upbringing, which is, is I'll say it now, it's dark. It is dark. But we're going to start with a quote from Richard after his arrest. But Ben, before you start, you know, Bonds, can you put a little bit of eerie music underneath it to really sell this quote? I know you're going to smash it, Ben. Thank you. This will just help you out a bit. Yeah, give me the edge. Get me out of that cocoon. Or that moth. Um, Idiot. A serial killer comes about by circumstances, like a recipe. Poverty, drugs, child abuse, these things contribute to a person and to a person's frustration and anger. And at some point in life, he explodes. Yeah, that does really set the vibe for the case. You can't deny his upbringing is one which would warp any child, I would say. Not to give him excuses. Obviously, a lot of people do grow up in, in a difficult circumstance but there's certain aspects and certain characters in his life which really do go on to shape him and, yeah, would be very hard for any child to kind of go through. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right about his childhood. And when we go on to talk about the murders itself, the range in victim type, the MO, there's so much about this that's unusual compared Mm. to other cases that we've covered. And that's, I think, what fascinates a lot of people about Richard Ramirez. He's he's also developed a bit of a devout following, Yeah, um, as many of the cases we cover have done. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to talk about. Is he our first Satanist? Yes. It's quite a question now, considering the cases we've covered. But I think I might put my neck on the line and say that he is our first, well, openly, Satanic uh, worshipper. And there may be some more to follow this series Ooh. Yeah, just leave that out there so now we're going to go into Richard's early life and see what shaped him Ricardo Leva Munoz Ramirez was born on the 29th of February 1960 in El Paso Texas and to his family and friends he went by Richard so we're back Tom Yep. Oh, okay. This Here is good. Is. So, okay, yeah. I, I like this. I like I like segments, Ben. So we've got the quote segment, which we're going to bring in, and uh, this is going to be interesting facts. Yeah, as always. Ben Carter. <laughs> let me do a jingle for it. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Are they? I don't know. Interesting facts. Facts. facts, facts. Well, a lot of people screaming at the at the at their audio devices, their their television sets. <laughs> Welcome to the 1950s. <laughs> the wireless and the telebox. 
What is El Paso known for? Well, Tom. Sauce. Old El. Pardon? Old El Paso. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the city of El Paso is called Sun City. Because on average, and we've been feeling this in the UK recently, it has, well, maybe not to this extent, it has 302 days of sunshine every year. That's a lot, isn't it? It's very specific as well, isn't it? Yeah. Very specific. Just a couple of months where it's cloudy, I imagine. But uh, El Paso is also known for its delicious Tex-Mex cuisine. (laughs) That is. Um, And, you know, and the fact that Richard Ramirez was born there. I'm sure there's other things that have happened. Yeah, one second. El Paso. What did you find? What search to find that? I just searched. Interesting facts, and that was 24 things you don't know, probably don't know about El Paso. I bet oh, wow. I bet I can find immediately. Something better than the sunshine city? <laughs> Tex-Mex. Ooh. You like this, Ben. Pat Garrett was a lawman from El Paso who lives in infamy for gunning down Billy the Kid. Wow. Pat Garrett. Pat Garrett. That is interesting. There you go. Um, the kid love to do an episode one day. And El Paso's official slogan is, you better El Paso up. <laughs> Which is fun. They're is fun. Someone called Paso that's fallen down. You better El Paso up. I don't... El Paso back up. El. Maybe. I don't think it is that. Yeah. I think it's just like more. Saddle up. I think they just mean have a good time. Yeah, so that's there's two other facts for you there, Ben. But I, I'm sure next time, the next episode, you're going to have some real hard hitting. Like, yeah. whoa, yeah. my I blood. Actually, next week, we've actually got some his, history. His history. <laughs> <laughs> history of snakes. His history. <laughs> <laughs> like you this morning. Ben, I spilled a bit of coffee in, in, well, in, in Dan's kitchen, and I came in to tell Dan that I'd done it because I spilled a little bit on a cushion. And he's like, oh, I thought you were joking to Ben because Ben had come in here and ratted me out. He oh, he's running to me. <laughs> As if I wouldn't say. Dan, Dan, guess what? (laughs) Absolute rat. Dripping. Anyway, enough about coffee spillages. So Richard was the youngest of five children born to Julian and Mercedes Ramirez, two hardworking Mexican immigrants who moved to America in the late 1940s. So Richard's four siblings were Robert, Reuben, Ruth and Joseph. I thought they were doing the R theme there. Yeah, poor old Joseph. You can't even (laughs) tweak that slightly, can you? I tried. (laughs) Joseph. It sounds like a dog saying his name. Rosef! <laughs> I, I know there's some families that do that name all the kids by letter. I don't like it. I just don't like yeah. it. So they would all refer to uh, Richard as Richie. So all of his siblings were of school age by the time Richard was born. So coupled with the fact that he had very few friends as a child, he spent a lot of his younger years alone. Richard's father, Julian, uh, was a police officer back when he was living in Mexico. However, upon entering America, he became a labourer. He basically spent many, many years working on and developing railways along the southwestern states. The particular one that he helped to, to develop was the Santa Fe railway line. Julian was a very large and physically imposing man who would tower over the rest of the Ramirez family. However, the mother was also quite a tall woman. Working on the railway tracks, is that an attractive prospect for you? Well, in 302 days of sunshine, Tom, I'd steer clear of that. Oh, I, f- I thought you were going to go for it. Yeah, fair enough. I'd, 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 I'd do a season. A season? I don't know if it's like skiing, is it? I'd do a season. <laughs> season on the tracks. <laughs> oh, it's like skiing, in a way. Oh, they call it tracks, do they? I don't know. I, I prefer <laughs> snowboarding. No, you've Track. never been in it. <laughs> I, know I the, prefer the, snowboarding. The practice bit. <laughs> the practice, I've been once, haven't I? I don't know. The practice bit is called like the bunny something. The, the bunny. The bunny. It's okay. just me and a load of 
four-year-old. I'm going for hot chocolate. <laughs> also, before we carry on, this is for the visual listener, but we've got a, a little mascot with us now, Jacob, pointing the wrong oh, way. Yeah. In the corner there, a little skeleton Jacob. We've just kind of given him the name, but if anyone has a better name, let us know, because he's willing to change it, aren't you? Oh, Fuck yeah, up! Yeah, yeah. We don't know the cause of death. Ben said he found it when he moved into his new house under the floorboards, but it's quite fresh. So by most accounts, uh, his father, Julian, was not a very nice man. He had an incredibly short fuse and would often lash out in extreme fits of rage for the smallest possible infraction. So he, he spent a lot of hours obviously working away on the train tracks, would come home and I think he would look for any, he'd either be exhausted and frustrated with his day maybe, but he would look for any reason to act out against his family. He was frequently physically aggressive to Richard and his siblings, as well as his wife, Mercedes. He was also an alcoholic and would spend almost all of his time outside of work drinking in the family house. A lot of our cases, alcohol has been a big thing in the, in the parents mm. and, and also very strict, aggressive parents is always a very key key feature he's an interesting character because obviously he was a previous police officer so he's very law-abiding and respectful in mm. his community but as soon as he got back into that house he ruled it with an iron fist mm. so one of rich's earliest memories of his father is a day when julian was trying to fix the fuel filter of his truck but caused additional damage to the vehicle rather than fixing it been doing diy recently and i can very much relate <laughs> As a result, Julian went berserk and began slamming his own head against the wall of the garage whilst his infant son watched on. I didn't do that. So, obviously, smashing his head against the wall, you all know what happened. He's doing and he Apparently, he could like physically feel the house. Like People inside knew he was doing it because it was such an impact that he was doing against the wall. His father became very bloodied and bruised from doing that. And Richard could very much remember the blood left on the wall and the, kind of the stain and the blood pouring from his dad's face afterwards. But yeah, it's very clear that his dad has, you know... An anger problem. Definitely, definitely. That's an overreaction. I think I punched the air when I was annoyed where I, could, I didn't manage to do what I was trying to do. In a bad way, not not a good way. I was like, ah, oh, rats. Swung at it. Yeah, swung and a miss. But didn't smash my face against a wall. Yeah. Good on you. Thank you so good much. Good on you. As Richard was the youngest, he has claimed that uh, he would often receive the brunt of his father's uh, beatings, but it's, it's widely uh, speculated that the rest of the children got it just as badly as Richard did. Richard claimed to have suffered severe head injuries from as early as the age of four and began to experience epileptic fits shortly after this point. He put this down to injuries inflicted by his father. However, as we're going to go on to discuss, there were a couple of other big instances where his father had nothing to do with particular head injuries. So yeah, we'll go on to discuss that more shortly. So not much is known about Richard's mother, Mercedes. However, despite raising five children and having the responsibility of running the family home, she also had to maintain a job that she held at a local boot factory. Maybe making predators. Like her son. Um, she is... <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's predators for anyone. It's a... She's said to have been a strict woman who displayed a lot of love and affection for her children. She was also extremely religious and she tried to raise her children to follow the same beliefs. Mercedes would often pray in order to try and fix any problems that she couldn't physically solve herself. She felt that these prayers were answered when Julianne's work began to take him away from the family home for days at a time, which gave her and her children some respite. That's just, you know, obviously that was in the age where divorce wasn't really, or people didn't get divorced like as, well, as often. And they're stri strictly religious as well. Yeah. Or immediately they just kind of sets the scene of how horrible the family home is. Yeah. If she's happy, the fact that her husband's away. Exactly. Well, and she's spending all day at a boot factory as well, wishing, oh, I wish I could give him the boot. Um, well, she'd be just... fired if she took some from, from work, wouldn't she? Yeah. Or maybe it's a car boot factory, which is very specific. Yeah. yeah. Me. Just empty space. 
So despite all of the hours worked by Julian and Mercedes, the family would still struggle to make ends meet financially. And this was likely due to the fact that Julian spent almost all of the family income on alcohol. Richard has never spoken negatively about his mother but he does have a lot to say about his father as mercedes would work long hours at the boot factory and julian was away working on the railroads the family had to hire a babysitter to look after richard and i thought maybe if they have you know a lot older siblings why couldn't they have Mm. kind of chipped in but in any case they hired a babysitter and this particular babysitter i don't think she was that keen on richard i don't think she could really be bothered with a very highly energetic little three-year-old Richard Ramirez at the time. So basically, he would always run around, loads of energy, wanting to do stuff, wanting to listen to music, wanting to watch TV, whereas this babysitter just kind of wanted to sit there, crack on with the shift, clock off early. When Richard approached her and asked her to turn the radio on for him, again, at three years old, it's quite, he's articulating well, I think. The three? Yeah, is that, that's quite I quite a lot for a three-year-old to say, please, can you turn the radio on for well, me? I don't think that quite is exactly probably what he said. Right. But Excuse I me, think, darling. <laughs> I think yeah. three, you can talk. Radio. Here, Dan? Yeah, three is probably an age where you can yeah. talk. Yeah. But, I mean, he articulated quite a lot. Did he? Saying, like, you know, I really want to listen to the... Um... Turn on now! <laughs> Richard, that was very eloquent. But I won't be putting the radio on. So, basically, he was pleading with her really remonstrating you're really selling this He's really <laughs> you're really selling this God. please turn this radio on I re- there's this track that I love right now oh, Radio Gaga yeah <laughs> and um, she refused to turn it on she wanted to watch um, TV and she left Richard alone and basically as a result of this he kicked off pretty big time about that and instead of um, retaliating what he did and again at free I think this is quite an elaborate mind that he's got so the radio was sat on the top of a, a, a large cabinet of drawers you've seen it in like home alone and stuff i'm sure but when you pull a, a, a drawer out then pull the next one above it out but not quite as far and it forms steps yeah so he did that kevin was a lot older than three so yeah didn't... yeah i'm not comparing them oh, okay so age you say, wise you, say you, just, see it on it, but... you know he slowly made his way to the top reaching out he's so close to the radio about six feet in the air, I've, I've heard. <laughs> this is so <laughs> elaborate. Okay. Anyway, he's just reaching to turn it on, and he's like, I've got this now. I'm going to hear the music that I crave. And um, <laughs> I really need this music. He overstretched to turn the dial of the mm. radio, fell completely forwards onto his head. I heard the dial, skull. the dial wasn't have as much give, or it wasn't as much resistance as expected, so he turned the dial right up. And <laughs> we did it, he fell. Turned the radio really high. 11. Highway to hell. He's on the floor going, how weird. That wouldn't have been out then, would it? No. Nah. Yeah, he basically fell fell and cracked his head from turning the radio on. Yeah, really a a significant fall, significant head injury. Just as he made it to the highest draw, he lost his balance, fell off, cracked his skull, knocked him unconscious, and he was unconscious for 15 minutes. That's a long time. That is a long time. That's like four songs. Like two Bohemian Rhapsodies. Richard was uh, rushed to hospital where he required 30 stitches to seal the wound. So this could explain where, you know, timeline-wise, his epileptic fits started to happen rather than his father being the direct causation for them. So when Richard was four, his older brother Reuben was caught burgling a home in the local neighbourhood. So when news got to Julian, who despite being an alcoholic abuser, was still an ex-policeman who was incredibly law-abiding. Like we said, he, he ruled the house of iron fist, but also he did want to still, you know, didn't want people to get into trouble. And he, he had very, you know, he wanted people to observe by the law. He collected Reuben from the police station, so brought him back to the family house and beat him to a pulp with the metal end of a hose pipe. Richard witnessed the entire thing. Oof, that's bad, isn't it? It is bad. 
So quite often with strict parents, people still rebel even after the punishments and Ruben was no different. So despite the beating, he also began sniffing glue as well as involving his younger brother Robert in the future burglaries. It seems that the children weren't as afraid of Julian who was working more and more frequently away from the family home. Yeah, this is really, really interesting. So he would sometimes spend four or five days at a time away from the family home. But whenever he did return, he did so with as much impact as possible. So he'd come back and if there was anything going on, if the boys had misbehaved or even if he felt that everything was okay, he would look for ways to like reassert his dominance. Mm. Any minor infraction, he would he would beat the children. Um, kind of trying to be like an impact sub. Like you're not there the whole game. Yes, yeah, but when yeah. you come along, I'm going to make, make a difference. But yeah. If, you, if you're going too full on, then it's, it's, it's just not going to work for anyone. No, you're going to run yourself into the ground. Mm. Um, and that's the thing about impact subs. But he did that to make sure that when he did go away again for work, the boys would sort of fear his return and mm. not get up to mischief in his absence. It didn't work. That's, you know, there are ways to go about it. I mean, did have FaceTime back then or anything to check in. So despite the age gap with the rest of his siblings, Richard was very, very close with his sister, Ruth. Not a lot mentioned of Joseph. We've no. talked about Reuben, talked about Ruth, talked about Richard. Maybe Joseph was just straight laced and just cracked on. Could very well have been. Richard absolutely loved Ruth. Very close with his mother and very close with his older sister. And when Richard was five years old, he was walking to the park with his brother, Joseph who now makes an appearance. When they spotted Ruth on a swing set, Richard immediately rushed over to see his sister. However, in his excitement, he got a little bit too close to the swing set. You know what happened, Tom. And Dan, you know what happened, Dan. Um, the swing set was coming back down with Ruth on it, and it smacked him in the head, once again resulting in an open head wound that required several stitches to seal, as well as a concussion. Yeah, it's very unfortunate, a very sweet way to get smashed in the head but after having that hit earlier on and having the fits and then also having this again and we know obviously at, at that young age the brain is developing and everything like that severe impact to the frontal lobe can uh, drastically affect the development of the brain and even affect things like empathy it's a pattern that has emerged with many a serial killer but it's not reason if your kid gets hit in the head once they're not going to turn into Richard Ramirez but twice you're dealing with a killer definitely definitely don't you think Dan? Mm. <laughs> you know just be careful with kids which you should be careful with them anyway really if they want the radio on put it on yep or just ask Alexa play Crocodile Rock by Elton John I'm having trouble connecting to the internet take a look at the help section in your Alexa app alright Alexa Alexa play I Could Murder a Podcast they're already listening to it to I know let's start the episode again that's annoying I, I wouldn't hello and welcome <laughs> I don't do the interest nah that's right um <laughs> So when attending school, Richard was very shy and quiet in class as he wasn't very used to socialising with children of his own age. However, he was popular and well-liked amongst the other children, with teachers claiming he had an active imagination and was always highly energetic. That's the kind of kid I don't want in my class. <laughs> Lots of energy and really imaginative. Miss, I've just made a wizard come out. Oh, just can you sit down, Richard, and read a book? So through the ages of six, seven and eight, Richard would experience a number of seizures, both in school and in the family home. Richard would refuse any medical attention for this as he felt he was still able to remain in control. When experiencing these seizures, Richard claims he saw numerous monsters of different shapes and sizes who would disappear as he regained his composure. That is terrifying. Apparently the monsters were terrifying. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> Apparently the monsters were uh, scary. <laughs> So apparently these monsters were very uh, troubling for Richard, but they would never do anything to harm him. That would be absolutely just yeah. the idea of just seeing monsters appear of different shapes and sizes in your class and knowing. It's kind of like a sixth sense, isn't it? 
Yeah, and not wanting any medical treatment to get rid of them. Yeah, that is true. So maybe he quite liked it. So Richard maintained good grades at school whilst also attending church with his mother. His older brothers had all dropped out of school and left home by this point, so he grew even closer to his mother as well as his sister Ruth. At the age of 10, and perhaps a coping mechanism of to potentially following his father and older brother's footsteps, Richard began to drink large amounts of alcohol, sniff glue, and smoke marijuana. At the age of 10. That is very young. Very young. Unless, as you said, it's a coping mechanism, or he's just looking at what his brothers have gone on to do, what his father does. It's, it's kind of out of nowhere. It's after the blows to the head, isn't it, as well? Possibly. Blows to the head, seen his brothers doing it, and that's very influential, isn't he it? He thinks it's normal. Yeah. They've normalised it, or he thinks it's cool. So despite the very turbulent relationship he held with his father, Richard did grow closer to him once his older brothers had left the family home. And at the age of 12, Richard started playing football for his middle school team, and he did so well at this that he was even given the position of quarterback. It's American football. American football, yeah, the, um, the American one. Yeah. Yeah, with the quarterbacks. <laughs> Julian was very impressed by this and wanted to go to as many of Richard's games as possible in order to cheer him on. And perhaps he saw the rest of the boys have left the nest. I've never really had a relationship with Richard. Now's my time to you know, support him. However, during one particular game, he saw Richard experience a seizure in the middle of the match, which gave me very Anthony Soprano vibes. And as a result of this, quite shockingly... The coach of the football team decided to kick Richard off the team because he said, if something happens to you while you're playing, it will all be my fault. It's like the Christian Eriksen, you know, with the, with the heart. It's, he wasn't covered by insurance to play in Italy. So it's probably, yeah, he thinks he can't have that on his hands, which I, I think obviously that's a real fucker for Richard. Yeah. The worry about his safety from the coach, if there's something that he can do in order to prevent yeah. it happening, is... I mean, he, that could have been, you know, Richard misquoting him. and Maybe he was a much more warm and friendly coach than that, but... I, I don't think the way he's worded mm. it is that mean, is it? If something happens to you while you're playing, it'll all be my fault. Where's he from? Essex. <laughs> I can see why that's really annoying for, I, for Richard, I'd but... I'd be more like, Richard, contact sports are probably not for you. That's just patronising, though. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Maybe these sports aren't for you. Here, here's some knitting. While you knit yourself a helmet. So, yeah, this being one of the things that, you know, his father was bonding with him over and then this happening. From the vibe I get from Richard's dad, you can see that probably being ashamed or embarrassed by that happening as well. Soprano. So his father didn't even talk to the coach about the incident and just took him home. So, yeah, it's it's, it's sad because I think as well, Richard's dad, maybe he saw how his kids were behaving, the other kids, and he thought, I'm going to make an effort with Richard and try and change things. And this was a key moment which 
could have perhaps you know led to more nice moments between them and you know it, being part of team sports you learn to like deal with other people and work together as a team and it's you know it's very good for kind of helping pe- people grow up with different values as well so this could be looked at as a key point where things uh, went uh, went the wrong way for Richard definitely and and if and if that wasn't then what we're going to talk about next is the big big turning point because yeah. I knew a little bit about this character before researching the case, but when I looked into it more... I'd say monster rather than character, man. Yeah, I think you're spot on, actually. But you were a bit like, this guy, this chap. Yeah, you were this cheeky boy, this cheeky monkey that we're going to talk about. So yeah, so Richard resented uh, and even started to hate his father as a result of the kind of this deterioration of of their relationship. And he instead sought a male role model in his older cousin, Miguel Ramirez, who went by Mike. Yeah, like I said, I knew a little bit about this and the influence he had, but when you read into Mike and the different things that he got up to, this is... A case in itself, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So so Mike uh, very quickly became a big influence on Richard, who was particularly enthralled by the fact that his cousin had recently fought in the Vietnam War. The two would regularly smoke marijuana together and talk about life. Mike... Very decorated uh, war veteran from the Vietnam War. Whilst serving in Vietnam, Mike became involved in the abduction, torture and mutilation of several Vietnamese women. And Mike even shared graphic Polaroid photos of these events that he had taken in Vietnam that included mutilated corpses, women he had raped and tortured, as well as soldiers that were dying. He also had two Polaroid photographs of himself holding the decapitated heads of women he had raped. He also had a thing for shrinking heads. Yes. Which I don't even know how you learn, yeah. like where, where you, you learn, start. You learn to do that. It's just absolutely bizarre. But yeah, basically, yeah, Mike was an absolute wrong one. The army actually, you know, they thought because he was a very good soldier, he was, you know, just he wouldn't think he would just kill, essentially, kill a machine. They kind of just looked over this thing they knew he was doing it up to these kind of things but they kind of just let it slide they didn't punish him retrospectively when he came back to the US they were just kind of like oh you know that's the way he's dealing with all this stress of Vietnam which you know obviously Vietnam was a horrible place for anyone to be but he, oh, his coping mechanism is is essentially raping women killing them cutting their heads off it's like well let's let's not just say that's a coping mechanism let's try and get him in bars as quickly as we can when we get to the other side. But yeah, him showing these pictures, showing off to, to Richard, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's disgusting. So instead of being frightened or disgusted uh, by these images, Richard actually became captivated by them, as well as the many stories his cousin would go on to tell. It seemed to light something inside of Richard that would enthrall him to the point that he would return to the Ramirez family home with a vivid memory of the images he had been shown, as well as the stories he had been told and masturbate to those thoughts. It is here that Richard begins to associate sexual acts with extreme acts of violence. Think about this recipe that he's talking about in the quote that you you so eloquently read earlier on. You've got parents, you know, uh, abusive parents, you've got the, the injuries to the head, a role model showing all these horrible acts. Is it all coming together to form the kind of regular patterns we see in regards to what would then lead someone on to kind of grow up with the wrong perspective on, of, of things? Yeah, and, and the sexualization of those acts as well is it's an added layer. Definitely. He's also then, when experiencing these seizures, he's having these hallucinations of monsters. Yeah. And we're going to talk a bit more about, well, what else is introduced to these ingredients, which again gives it another layer. I feel like I say this when every time we get a really lengthy interesting but dark childhood but this is next level i feel 
yeah, I mean, it's hard to compare certain certain ones, but there's so I meant that stuff about Mike is is incredibly shocking in terms yeah. of well, just in terms of that stuff going on anyway, and that's you know how much that definitely definitely would have had a big influence, and yeah. we're going to go into even more what, what Mike would do as well, which is even going to add more more fuel to this fire. So Mike would, as we said, regularly boast about the fact he had raped, tortured, dismembered and even decapitated numerous Vietnamese women. He also claimed that his confirmed kill count, whether this was enemy soldiers or innocent civilians, was 29 people. Mike also, as Tom mentioned, also shrank eight women's heads and allegedly used them as pillows to sleep during the war. Now, is that just something you say to look extra sort of... I just... This is not a quote I think I would ever say. A shrunken head. Wouldn't a normal head be comfier than a shrunken one? But I don't know what goes into the shrunking of the head. I don't know how you shrink a head. But I had a quick Google, a very quick Google. <laughs> and then lots, lots of images started to come up. But I think you remove the skull okay, yeah, so from the neck. Oh, the skull from the, and then and most sh- of this kind of flesh is removed from the cranium. <sighs> the, ear, the ears and the mouth are sewn shut. I don't know how it actually shrinks, though. Well, is, it not, is that not just not the skin and everything dying? Like a, I like guess a, so, Like yeah. a raisin. So to answer that, then, shrunken would, heads would be more comfortable as pillows. A little pillow, like a travel pillow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, this is... Imagine sleeping next to it. <laughs> you go, what's happened? What have you... Oh, no, I was, I, was eating, um, I was eating some fried chicken last night. <laughs> Excuse the smell. <laughs> but it's like, that's coming from your pillow. I'll just turn around and see his head laying on another head in the face staring at you. <laughs> Fucking horrible. So a horrific point about Mike, as Ben said, he's, he's a decorated Vietnam veteran who had already technically become a serial killer before returning, not just as I said, killing the soldiers, but also just killing innocent women and a serial rapist during his time over there. He was regarded as someone with a distinct lack of empathy and absolutely no fear of death. He held very little regard for the life of others, with the exception of Richard. So despite all of this, Mike returned as an American war hero. So as the two spent more time together, Mike taught Richard some military skills, including how to kill or ambush someone with stealth, as well as how to effectively stay hidden in the dark. That's a key moment. Mm -hmm. Despite the two growing extremely close, Richard would never tell Mike that his father was abusing him due to fears of what Mike might do to his father. Well, it's strange, isn't it? He admires um, Mike so much, but but he still has a bit of care for his dad that he doesn't want yeah. Mike to kind of defend him against his father but yeah that him teaching him essentially military grade level skills of creeping around mm. now how does that come up as well is Richard asking for this training or is he just saying you know what is a bit of a laugh staying hidden in the dark be really quiet so playing the games of kids go anyone next one speaks <laughs> loses yeah it's, it's odd it's odd I imagine Richard must be asking some questions yeah at around the same time, Richard wanted to escape from his father's violent outbursts, and he would do this by hiding and sleeping in a local graveyard. It is here that Richard would practice staying unseen and unheard in the darkness. So this brings us to one of the most significant days in Richard Ramirez's life, the 4th of May 1973, when he was just 13 years old. So Richard was at Mike's apartment to smoke and drink with him. I think they're playing pool as well, aren't they? A little mini pool table, little, yeah. I, I hate the mini ones, the really yeah, small ones. Tiny I, I like to think of them with the really small, like the travel one. Mike's wife, Jessie, wasn't happy with um, Mike spending lots of time with Richard. She kind of thought, that, why don't you get a job? Yeah. Um, Hanging out with a 13-year-old. Yeah, it's, it's a bit odd. His family member makes it less well, weird. yeah. yeah. But spending your time drinking and smoking with him makes it weird again. And uh, she's kind of always saying to him, why don't you get a job? And he's like, I'll get a job when I want to. Like, I'll do that. You know, he, I think he was trying to be like, you know, I've just been at a war. 
let me have some time. But she was like, mm, maybe we should go get a job. Whilst at the house, um, before Jesse came back, Richard went to the fridge to get another can of cola, I believe. And he saw a gun in the fridge, which is a, is a weird sight. And he asked Mike, why is the gun in the fridge? And he says, I want to keep it cold. I don't know what that means. Hmm. So when Jesse came back and started nagging at Mike again, why is, why is Richard here again? And why didn't you get a job? And he's, he basically said, you know, if you say anything else to me, I'm going to, yeah, you're going you're gonna to learn a lesson. And then she, she basically laughed and thought he wouldn't do anything. He got the, he got the gun out and she was like, what, what are you going to do? Shoot me. And she basically stood up to him directly and was like, she wouldn't believe that he would do it. And then he went on to point blank fire it in Jesse's face in front of Richard as well as their two young children. And Jesse died immediately. So Richard just witnessed there his cousin's wife getting murdered in front of him by the person he believes to be, you know, his kind of hero at this yeah, stage. In an incredibly graphic fashion. Mm. And over such a, it's just basically her nagging at him. Yeah. Like we said, Mike, we could, Mike Ramirez, there's an episode there. Yeah, there really is. So 13-year-old Richard was not moved by the incident and didn't experience any traumatic feelings whatsoever. The shooting did, however, make Richard become more withdrawn from his family and he would spend the rest of his teenage years almost completely isolated. So after that, Richard basically just went home. He didn't tell his parents about what he saw or anything like that. He just went home straight away and he left, left Mike to it. So Mike was later arrested for the murder and found not guilty by reason of insanity, which resulted in him being sentenced to serve several years at Texas State Mental Hospital. This removed any kind of role model from Richard's life. So yeah, that kind of it adds up, doesn't it, with all the waste behaviours and what he was doing. Definitely, um, definitely. And he kept all these Polaroid photos we talked about of his time in Vietnam. He just kept them in a little shoebox that he hid mm. in the apartment. And apparently family members had to go over there to kind of collect different bits and pieces because obviously the children then went into the care of the family, Mike's children. I just uh, have that image of either the, the two little children that Mike had finding that shoebox mm. or another family member other than Richard finding yeah. that shoebox and just what they must have thought. I remember because Richard went back there with his dad to help kind of tidy up the place and get things out of there. And I think Richard commented on the fact that the blood stain was still there on the floor and things like that. So it's kind of links to his, his dad's stain on the wall and the floor of blood was very much, you know, he's always kind of drawn to it mm. at a young age. It'd be easy to speculate as well if Richard knew what was in the shoebox and where it was kept mm. and the fact that he was aroused by those images mm. maybe he would have grabbed the shoebox and said i'm taking his nikes so during uh, his time alone richard developed a keen interest in satanism and the occult and he claims that these interests developed due to the fact that he felt god would not approve of his fantasies and his thoughts whereas satan would be less judgmental so these i love it like, <laughs> satan's not very judgy god is so judgy but satan he's just really open-minded I think it was based on the fact that he was seeing these monsters having all these internal sexual desires around atrocities mm. and aggression and violence that he felt that he was behaving and feeling um, and living much more in line with Satan's yeah. beliefs than that of God. So, yeah, he really gets into his Satanism and the occult, which, again, we're going we're gonna to talk on. Uh, we're going to talk in more detail on later in the episode. But... This is another ingredient to add to that mixture. And it's just, it's it's a bizarre set of experiences that Richard has gone through so far. Not long after the shooting, Richard moved in with his sister Ruth and her husband, Roberto. Another R. Poor Joseph. So Roberto was yet another negative male role model for Richard, this time due to the fact that he was a habitual peeping Tom. Roberto began to take Richard on his late night walks where he would find houses with occupants to watch. And this became like a regular kind of outing for them. He was a peeping Tom, but wasn't he a bit of a rape in Ben as well? 
So this became a regular thing for the pair. They would go on late night walks, early morning walks. They would find houses. And it wasn't just adults they would watch. They would also oh. watch children. Do you know what? I think we might have, I might have mentioned this on another episode. Peeping Tom, do you know where that originated from? I don't. So from 1773 in Coventry, Peeping Tom is, that's where it originated. Essentially, a woman rode through the streets of Coventry naked and there was a boy who peeped. Because everyone looked away when she rode through the street. There's more detail to it than that. But essentially, there's a statue in Coventry of a woman riding for a horse naked and there's a little boy peeping. Is he really peeping, though, if... Everyone else is just looking away, like he's not sort of peeping through a window or through his hands. That's that's what. So you said is he not? He's not really peeping. Then, but if if he's just peeping through his hands or through, he might have just been going like that. And and also, I think it was more. It was more established that she was going to be doing this. Okay, but if he's peeping, surely someone else has peeped to see that he was peeping. Yeah, peeping at him is different. Peeping at her, isn't it? Still peeping. It's not peeping. He's peeping at the naked lady, Ben. Someone's looking. Someone's looking at Tom and going, "You dirty bastard, turn around." To be fair, I've just seen a picture of Peeping Tom. And he's not as, he doesn't look as innocent as Or it's Peering Tom, it Oh. Yeah. He could be a character in a horror video game. He could be. Whilst out on these nightly walks with Roberto, Richard would practice the stealth skills that Mike had taught him. And just four years after killing his wife, Mike was released from the Texas State Mental Hospital and began to join Richard and Roberto on these nightly escapades. This band of boys is just disturbing they would eventually also begin to steal from the houses that they were watching so mike's influence here is another negative one but richard and roberto also going along with it they begin to burgle richard started taking lsd i mean he's still like in his early teens at this point as well and he's been exposed to all of this got involved in all of this he now starts taking lsd at the age of 14 and this would enable him to experience similar visions that would occur when he had his seizures This time, the monsters were far more vivid and remained present for longer. But again, they would never harm him. Yeah, I guess he's looking at them and he's thinking, oh, there's a reason why these aren't coming at me. But yeah, it's he's had a cocktail of drugs by this age and his nightly walks. Horrific. Uh, Richard's behaviours spiralled out of control and his thoughts became darker and darker. Richard began to have vivid thoughts about murder, mutilation and rape, whilst also depending more and more on drugs and alcohol. So when Richard was 16, he got a summer job working at a local Holiday Inn. And whilst in this role, he used a master key to steal from multiple people that were staying at the hotel whilst they slept. He was given the nicknames Richie the Thief and Fingers by Roberto and Mike. Richie the Thief. Sounds like an old blues guitarist, but he stole hearts. Yeah, that all lines up. Yeah. Richard managed to get away with... Fingers a- on the keys as well. How did All yeah. members of the band. So Richard managed to get away with a number of robberies from patrons of the hotel. However, he was eventually dismissed from his role when he was accused of molesting two young boys when he managed to trap them in the elevator of the hotel, which is just absolutely hideous. Though these accusations were never proven, he was also caught attempting to rape a woman while she slept in her hotel room a few days later. However, he was stopped by the victim's husband who returned to the room and caught Richard there who viciously beat Richard upon finding him in, in their room. So, yeah, the, the police were called for this matter, but it was eventually dropped because Richard basically was saying to his parents that that's not true. It was a kind of plan. The woman came on to him and he was just kind of... And then the, then the husband... It was all basically... Yeah. The husband reacted to the wife and, and him being together. 
And then says, yeah, they basically dropped the case and he wasn't taken to court for it at all. That's it, yeah. They were from out of town and they didn't want to have to keep returning to Texas to follow the, you know, the legal proceedings. So they just dropped it. But that's a key point, isn't it? Because if that was to actually lead to anything, that that would have put that on his record for... So he would immediately have been alerted to the police a lot earlier on. So by the age of 18, Richard was a high school dropout who was drifting around Texas, New Mexico, Arizona and California, as well as traveling up to San Francisco. With seemingly no direction for his life other than the fact he no longer wanted to associate with Mike and Roberto. So at the age of 22, Richard made the decision to permanently move to California, where he would regularly stay in Skid Row hotels. And despite never seeming to work or hold down any jobs, he would always have money to buy cocaine. This became his drug of preference. It is believed that Richard would feed his cocaine habit by committing burglaries and thefts, but also assaulting and stealing from tourists. So at this point, Richard is technically homeless. He is also jobless and his inner thoughts and feelings, as well as his growing drug habit, is taking him to darker depths than he has ever reached before. And before we move on, we want to say a quick thank you to this week's sponsor, Dead Happy. So a big welcome back to the team over at Dead Happy. We are very happy to have you on board this series. Life insurance was barely alive when Dead Happy got hold of it, Tom. They've resurrected it, giving it a fresh new spin. And a few of my friends actually have got onto it since they started also listening to the podcast. It's made life insurance far more easy and digestible for them. So I'm going to say this, Ben. It's it's a little bit of a spoiler for people. Sure. We're all going to die. We are. Uh, And sorry to break it to Jacob. I'm sure he's aware of this. He's dead. And the thing about Jacob was he wasn't very clothed up. He didn't get he didn't get his insurance sorted out, and he really fucked over his family. So sixty six children every day lose a parent who is not insured. And Jacob had six kids, and he 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 was just like, oh well, it's a lot of paperwork. Dead happy, no paperwork. Cut to the chase. Bish bosh bash, few questions asked, done and dusted. Don't have to worry about it. Absolutely right. And Jacob left him in a mess in the middle of a cost of living crisis, yeah. which I think, if, if ever a time to insure yourself, insure yourself in the middle of a cost of living crisis. 50% of parents do not have life insurance. And that's essentially, if you ask me, that's essentially saying, kids, I don't really like you or respect you. Maybe people say that's harsh, but it's just because it's so straightforward and so easy to do, yeah. and it doesn't cost them much. And if, if your if your financial circumstances do change, you can interchange the plan as you go on. That's right, Tom. And Dead Happy have got flexible prices, flexible payouts, and they are, I mean, they're idiot-proof in terms of registering with them. You can do it in a few seconds. A few easy questions and boom, you're, you're insured. <laughs> So the really good thing about Dead Happy, guys, is that there's no medical, no sales calls, and no bullshit. There's also no paperwork, which is, is friendly for the planet. And I do like this planet. Yeah. Jacob didn't seem to give two shits. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Jacob, he, I did see him just burning books occasionally. Yeah. Like, he's just the, the little local library. He's going, oh, just this, burn this book. I saw him throw a sofa into the sea as well. Into the sea? Yeah. He saw him throw a sofa into the sea. By himself, and that's started the downfall of the spine. I saw him call a tuna a prick. Wow. Yeah. So it just wasn't one of the world, was Jake? And that's why that's where yeah, he is today. Look what happened to him? It, I mean, we're not threatening people if you don't if you don't get it. You... So yes, guys, why not go over to deadhappy.com and use our code Murder for three months free and basically sort your life out. Not only will you be supporting yourself and your loved ones and getting yourself insured, you'll also be supporting the podcast, which we really, really appreciate. And back to the episode. The 28th of June 1984 at Glassell Park, Los Angeles, Ramirez broke into the home of 79-year-old Jenny Vicow with the intention of stealing her valuables. However, upon entering, he soon becomes angered when he is unable to find anything of significance. As a result, and needing a release for his violent rage, he violently attacks the sleeping Jenny in her bed with a knife. He slashes her neck so deeply that he almost decapitates her. Once he has committed this atrocious murder, he then becomes aroused and proceeds to engage in sexual intercourse with her dead corpse. It's not until the next day that Jenny's unknown son Jack finds her dead in her unlocked apartment. 17th of March 1985. 
22-year-old Maria Hernandez arrives home from work, tired from her shift and ready to head to bed. Little does she know that Richard Ramirez is already lurking in the shadows, laying in wait for her. Upon pulling the car into the garage of her apartment complex, she is startled when he slams his hands on the bonnet of her car. It's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah. And she'd already parked by this point, so he wasn't trying to slow her down. It was just to startle. Mm. This action freezes her into a state of fear. Ramirez then approaches a beyond terrified Maria silently with a gun, piercing her with his blazing, hateful eyes. Maria, although paralysed in terror, is driven by the natural instinct to try and survive. And in an act of self-defence, she manages to raise her hands up to her face, which miraculously would go on to save her life. Ramirez, without hesitation, fires the gun directly at Maria. However, the car keys in her raised hands deflect the bullet. She falls to the floor, feigning death, and Ramirez, thinking he has claimed his second victim, vacates the garage in search of his next. So that's an unbelievable slice of good fortune. Mm, yeah. Bullet deflected off her car key. So it's a reason why people should have chunky metal uh, key rings. Yeah. People might think they're a bit garish, but could be the difference. Got one for the van, camper van. I'll bring that up. Yeah. Doubles up as a tape measure and uh, a measuring spirit, spirit level. A measuring spirit. <laughs> Just comes out. How tall is the ghost? <laughs> so tall. <laughs> Maria's 34-year-old roommate, Dale Okasaki, hears the shot being fired and runs to hide in the kitchen. Devastatingly, she is not as lucky as Maria. She is unaware that Ramirez has already discovered her and is simply biding his time, waiting for her to think it's safe to come out. She raises her head to check the scene and she is shot dead immediately in cold blood by Ramirez inside the condo she shares with Maria. So after shooting Dale, Ramirez then makes his way to exit the building and run away from the scene. As he's doing this, he makes eye contact with Maria and realises that she's still alive and she desperately pleads with him, please don't shoot me again. And for some unknown reason, he doesn't shoot her and continues running off into the night. So maybe at this point he feels like he's fired two shots. There'll be yeah. a presence alerted to this. He doesn't go back to Maria and continues to run into the night. Or maybe he thought that the damage had been done to her because he shot her in the face. Or he thought that, you know, if he's believing Satan's guiding him and stuff like that, and then maybe he thought that she wasn't meant to die. Very true. Maria then goes on to discover the body of her roommate Dale shortly afterwards. So that's, yeah... That's a, a horrific scene that Maria encounters. Less than an hour later, and perhaps driven by dissatisfaction at allowing Maria to live, Ramirez then goes on to shoot and kill Sylian Yu after stopping and dragging the petrified art student out of her car on her drive home. This incident takes his tally to two murders and one attempted murder on St. Patrick's Day of 1985. And this also would go on to pinpoint the start of a horrific series of murders that Ramirez goes on to famously commit. After these three attacks, Ramirez is coined the walk-in killer and the valley intruder by the local press. So it's the walk-in as, as in he's walked in, not as in he's walking. Because walk that could be killer. a most killer. Yeah. And it's not a walk-in um, like fridge. What's not? Sorry. Uh, he's not like the walk-in refrigerator oh yeah he's not taking people to a fridge to kill, kill them no. no quite interesting to note as well that obviously the first murder with um jenny vinkauer that's 28th of june 1984 so he's waited nearly around a year yeah until the, ne the next attacks so it's quite interesting he's, he's done that kind of laid low i imagine still committing crimes and whatnot but not of, of this extent and then on 17th of march he decides just to kind of really just not turn things up a level which is quite a 
a leap. I mean, obviously, like we said, the way he was raised and stuff like that, and the stuff he, he was made aware of and stuff he was shown, it's not something that was just bubbling away that he needed yeah. to do this in order to kind of fulfill his fantasies. Well, that's it. And in, in the timeline of his crimes, like the like you said, the first murder, the one in 1984, once we now arrive at the, the second one, from here on, it's just very, very frequent compared mm. to the previous 11 months. So, yeah, it's a, a big escalation. You wonder what would be the motivator for that. Yeah. So March 27th, 1985, 10 days later, and Richard Ramirez breaks into the home of Vincent and Maxine Zazara. He kills unassuming 64-year-old Vincent by gunshot upon finding him in the living room of the couple's home and then proceeds to fatally shoot and horrifically stab and slash Maxine in one of the bedrooms. Not satisfied by the two deaths alone, Ramirez then carves a T into Maxine's chest with his knife, and even goes on to gouge her eyes out. Upon fleeing the scene, Ramirez intentionally leaves an Avia trainer footprint in a flower bed next to the house. This trainer print goes on to become a significant piece of evidence in the case. The married couple were found dead and decaying several days later by a business associate who became concerned after not hearing from either of them for some time. So yeah, this this footprint was a very, very big part of the evidence in this case in trying to track down uh, the Valley Intruder. And avias were quite like a, not a commonly... Niche. Yeah, fairly niche. Just looking now at some of avias. Avias, sorry. Yeah, nice. Um, yes, they're all right. They're quite retro. Yeah. Kind of thing you could, you could perhaps find at Gully Gums. Kill Tom, 30% off. Or kill Ben if you want. Apparently it's twenty five percent Ben, so I don't know why. But no, Faye. It's Faye. But I think people would be more keen to kill me off than. Are you, are you trying to get uh, sympathy? No. Well, maybe. Kill Ben, Faye. Just kill Ben, isn't it? Yeah. I'm confused. Um, Just kill Ben. Ramirez silently breaks into the home of Bill and Lily Doy, where he surprises Bill and shoots him in the head, killing him instantly. He then finds Lily, who had obviously heard the shot come from within her home, and comes out to investigate. Ramirez grabs her and puts her in thumb cuffs, which are essentially a restraining device which is placed on the thumbs to prevent movement. That's a bit cool. Yeah, that's, for me, so uncomfortable. Like a little butterfly, isn't it? Yeah. I just feel like if you're trying to pull them apart, your thumbs are going to just snap. Effective. Is, yeah, effective, yeah. but horrible. I hate to dislocate my thumb or anything like that. No, no one's asking you to. No, but, I'm just uh, telling you I would hate that. Sounds like you want it in a weird way. Kind of. <laughs> Ramirez now has thumb cuffs, so questions mm. have got to be asked as to where he where he got those. He then savagely rapes and beats... He obviously has cuff links in the, uh, in his the black bike market. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Thank you, sir. He then savagely rapes and beats Lily repeatedly, but miraculously, she is somehow able to survive the attack. May the 29th, 1985, Ramirez steals a car and sets off on what can only be described as a murderous joyride. Once again, Ramirez repeats his usual pattern of quietly breaking into someone's home with the intention of taking his victims by surprise. In this case, it is the home of Mabel Bell and her disabled sister Florence Lang, who are both in their 80s. This time, Ramirez steers away from his usual fashion of using a gun and instead viciously beats the two ladies with a hammer. Mabel unfortunately dies as a result of the horrific wounds inflicted, but her sister Florence somehow manages to survive. Like you mentioned in the beginning, age isn't a factor here. He's killing men and women, and also he's using thumb cuffs, he's using a gun, he's using a hammer, he's used a knife. Like how the police could solve this, and it's such a hard case to solve compared to some other cases we've done in regards to there's not a real clear, that could be multiple 
multiple people out there doing yeah. these things. Yeah, and and that's the thing. I think I don't think that's him being smart either in going. I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this. I'm going to go for this age, that age. I just think he wanted to cause as much harm as possible. I think he's pretty fantasized over the years about different ways of doing it, isn't yeah. he? So he's yeah. and he's going back to these photos that um, mm. Mike showed him of Vietnam, and he's basically creating his own his own images, and it's yeah. It's horrific. May 30th, 1985. A day later, Ramirez breaks and enters the home of 41-year-old Carol Kai. Carol shares the home with her 11-year-old son. Ramirez forces the terrified boy into a bedroom wardrobe before repeatedly raping Carol. We can presume that this malicious act is heard in full by Carol's petrified son, who is unable to do anything to protect his mother. Interestingly, on this occasion, Ramirez chooses not to kill his victims. However, before leaving, he handcuffs the terrified mother and son together before warning them that he will end them if they call the police. That is again. It's like, what's the reason for killing someone, not killing others? Is it the yeah. fact that because of his connection with his mother and there's a little son there, and he thought that you know that kind of thing. It's it's interesting why he makes decisions. So at this point, he hadn't killed any young people. Maybe yeah, maybe he's seeing himself in 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 the boy. But, but even if he killed the mum, like it's like some people would draw the line at killing kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, most people would draw the line. So him not killing the mother, yeah, it's just it's interesting that there might is there some moral compass within him there. I don't know. Or is he leaving them alive for a reason? You know, saying that he's going to be watching them. I will end you if you call the police. Mm. I mean, does that go back to the 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 first woman that he made eye contact with as he mm. was fleeing? Did he make a choice to leave, um, you know, someone alive? Yeah. But then if they if they've both seen him, I know he's in the, yeah. he's in the darkness a little bit. But yeah, but they're yeah. touring quite regularly. But he was obviously not touring at this time. Justin Hawkins. Friday night stalker. I mean, they got some good Friday night. It's a bit of a stretch, but it, it, it works. June 26th, 1985. This murder is occasionally unreported because Ramirez was not officially charged for it. Patty Elaine Higgins, a 31-year-old special education teacher, is enjoying an evening at home alone when Ramirez, in his usual style, quietly breaks into her apartment. He sexually assaults her, and if that isn't enough, also brutally murders her by cutting her throat with a knife. So Ramirez would go on to not be officially charged for um, Higgins' murder due to lack of evidence, but the pattern and the timing of the murder, it all very much points in his direction, with the breaking and entering, sexual assault, murder and stealing of possessions. As well as that, it's also in a similar area to the other victims prior to the attack. 2nd of July 1985, Ramirez drives to Arcadia, Los Angeles. He chooses the house belonging to 75-year-old grandmother Mary Louise Cannon at random and commits his usual act of breaking and entering the home. He discovers Mary Louise peacefully sleeping in her bed and gruesomely beats her over and over again with a bedside lamp until she falls into unconsciousness. He then proceeds to stab her multiple times with a knife stolen from the victim's own kitchen. He leaves Mary Louise to die from her injuries and flees the bloody scene without an ounce of remorse. 5th of July 1985. 16-year-old Whitney Bennett is the next victim to fall victim to the Valley Intruder. After spending a fun evening with friends, Whitney falls asleep in her bed at home, when Ramirez sneaks through her open bedroom window and attacks her aggressively with a car wrench. So previous victim, bedside lamp, now a car wrench. And at this point as well, it's the um, peak of summer. It was a very, very hot summer that year. So so many people were leaving their doors unlocked, windows open. And this again just gave him more and more opportunity to, to, to you know claim his next victim. Would leaving the door unlocked make it cooler? And for the keys in the door, you could argue that it's a draft stopper. <laughs> it's one of those where everyone will have that mindset of it's not going to happen to me or in my neighbourhood with the windows and stuff being open. But 
it's a truly terrifying thought of just someone walking around looking yeah. for these opportunities. There's a lot of similarities if you cancel out the murder. There's a lot of similarities with this case I found with the Beast of Jersey. Yeah. In terms of random age groups, random locations, but big element that was attractive to the suspect is that he was able to watch people stand over them while they're asleep. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's just, yeah, the Beast of Jersey, that research was... There's even elements of BTK with that, isn't it? It's yeah. The watching and... Definitely, definitely. And it's a power thing, a control thing that, yeah. that, gets, that gets them off. So with this particular one, he's attacked Whitney with a car wrench. However, he is unable to find a knife in her house to finalise the attack. So instead, he uses a telephone cord and attempts to strangle the teenager. The telephone cord begins to spark, which unnerves Ramirez and he flees the scene in a panic, leaving behind a bloody footprint and the used wrench. Whitney Bennett miraculously survived the attack and Ramirez would actually later go on to say that he believes Jesus intervened to save the life of the 16-year-old girl. The little spark on the, the phone. 7th of July 1985, two days after the attack on Whitney, Richard Ramirez is on the hunt for his next prey. He breaks and enters the home of 61-year-old Joyce Lucille Nelson and finds her asleep on the sofa. This attack is beyond a doubt one of his most horrific and malicious. Ramirez uses his foot to stomp on her head and neck repeatedly. She dies as a result of the injuries sustained, and police later report that the physicality of the attack was so violent that a shoe print was left imprinted on Joyce's face. I remember one of the documentaries I watched has uh, an interview with Joyce Nelson's two sons, and they talk about that they were the ones that found her and having to clean up that scene afterwards. One of the brothers couldn't finish describing it and said, I had to leave my brother to yeah. finish this. It's just... And every murder at this point, he's done something different. Yeah. Strangling, stomping, stabbing, shooting, beating. It's... Yeah, it, and how uh, the police at this point as well, how are they even... Are they even aware this is a serial killer? Yeah. I think it's, it's multiple separate it's, murders. You would assume... Because there's no pattern, there's no, there's no way of, and the only thing linking is the eyewitnesses. Yeah, who, who yeah. were well, those two attacks were slightly different. So, so after committing the horrifically physical murder, he then leaves the scene of the crime and goes hunting for his next victim, hungry to strike again. He selects 63-year-old Sophie Dickman's home, where helpless Sophie is handcuffed, sexually assaulted, has her possession stolen, and then is made to swear on Satan that there are no other valuables hidden within the property. Ramirez does not murder Sophie Dickman, and she survives the attack. He's letting a lot of people live. I yeah. mean, he's killing a lot of people, but he's letting a lot of people survive him. Now, now this is going to be the, the moment where he's obviously made his prayer on Satan, so that's going to then go out to the police and the press as well, that this is you know linked to someone who's a Satan, a Satan worshipper. But yeah, it, I, haven't, well, I haven't heard what's that makes him decide. He doesn't like flip a coin. I think he's just, he's going back to his time with Roberto. He's staking out the area he's looking at it's kind of Richard Chasey in that sense he's looking at what houses are open at night what windows are left mm. open is it an elderly woman is it not an elderly woman is it someone it does, that's vulnerable it does seem to be an elderly woman and vulnerable is what it is predominantly yeah. yeah these last few murders in particular there's been like two or three days between each one yeah and at this point now 20 days pass and Ramirez succumbs to his murderous urge once again. So we arrive at 20th of July, 1985. By this point, Ramirez has acquired a machete, which will play a significant role in the death of his next victims, Max and Layla Niding. He breaks into their home in the early hours of the morning, and whilst the unassuming couple are asleep in their bed, Ramirez hacks at them with the machete and then finishes the deed with gunshots fired into each of their heads. 
He then proceeds to steal valuables and vacates the property. Clearly not satisfied by the two murders he has just committed, he also breaks into the family home of the Kovanans, where he fatally shoots the sleeping father, 32-year-old Chainarong, in the head. He ties up Chainarong's eight-year-old son before repeatedly raping and sodomizing his wife. There are also some reports that state their son may have been subjected to sexual abuse during this hideous attack too. This is the thing as well, one thing that isn't in his childhood, as far as we're aware, is sexual abuse. He didn't really have too many relationships with females growing up in his in his school years, and he wasn't sexually abused. But then he was his first link to sexuality was... The Vietnam. Yeah, his cousin. Talking about it. Once his sexual appetite has been satisfied, Ramirez physically drags some kid around the house demanding her to present all the money and valuables to him, once again insisting that she swears on Satan that there is nothing else she is hiding from him. Some kid and her son survive the brutal attack. Imagine when Chain and Rong found and fell in love. He's like, Who who's your new partner? Some kid. Chain <laughs> <laughs> <Jane> wrong. <laughs> well don't chain her wrong. Chain her right. Don't chain her at all. <laughs> 6th of August 1985, Ramirez is in predator mode once again. He drives to Northridge, LA and breaks into the home of married couple Virginia and Christopher Peterson. He catches Virginia unawares in the bedroom. She screams in shock, but he shows no mercy and shoots her in the face. He then shoots her husband Christopher in the face too, but Christopher fights back. Although two more shots are fired towards Christopher, he clearly does enough to spook Ramirez, who quickly flees the scene. Miraculously, both the Petersons survive. So the Petersons were both very tall and athletic people as well. I remember them making a point of that in the documentaries I watched where he basically broke into the wrong house because they're both quite you know, physically able to handle themselves. And yeah, they both miraculously survived being shot in the head. On the 8th of August 1985, two nights later, Ramirez repeats his pattern of breaking and entering into a marital home. This time, the home belongs to Elias Aberworth and his wife, Sakina. Ramirez then kills a sleeping Elias instantly by shooting him in the head and he then proceeds to rape and beat Sakina. During the assault on Sakina, the couple's three-year-old son wanders into the bedroom, upset and crying after being woken up from the ensuing chaos. Ramirez further adds to the ordeal by tying up the three-year-old and continues to rape his mother in front of him. Ramirez maintains his copycat style of practice by stealing the family's belongings and demanding Sakina swears on Satan that there is nothing left for him to take. Once Ramirez flees the scene, Sakina is able to untie her traumatised son and she is then able to alert neighbours and call for help. I definitely think there's a correlation between there being a young boy there and then letting mum live, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. Over the following days, there is obviously a flurry of media attention, an interest in capturing the killer responsible for the brutal attacks, and it has sparked a huge amount of public interest. Ramirez, who realises the situation is becoming more strained on him, decides to relocate his attacks to the San Francisco area. On the 18th of August 1985, during his next attack, which takes place against the Pan couple, Ramirez follows his pattern of shooting and killing the husband Peter, before going on to sexually assault and horrifically beat up his wife Barbara. She too is fatally shot in the head and is left to die. After killing Peter and Barbara Pan, Ramirez uses lipstick to draw a satanic pentagram on the bedroom wall, along with writing the line, Jack the Knife. Disturbingly, Ramirez then eats everything in Pan's fridge and proceeds to throw up all he has eaten on the kitchen floor. He then becomes sexually aroused, masturbates and relieves himself in the living room. So that's really... Eating in the fridge, regurgitating everything, getting turned on, then wanking on the sofa. That's fresh this weekend. Jack the Knife as well, is that... Is that him because the name's starting to get out there, the Night Stalker? 
weird one. Is he trying to get, just give himself a name? And he's like, oh, I don't like these names are coming out. The Walking Killer, Jack the Knife is what I want. But yeah, odd. So once again, Ramirez would leave a shoe print at the scene of the crime, which helps for the police to confirm that although these murders have been committed outside the killer's LA comfort zone, it is without a doubt the same person. It must have been a really rare shoe. I'm thinking so. So the police have been proactive with the shoe print by this point, ascertaining that their perpetrator wears a size 11.5 of a particular Aviva trainer, of which only six pairs in total have been distributed for sale in the USA. That's mad. So it must be a really niche shoe brand if only six pairs have been. So five have been allocated amongst various stores in Arizona, leaving one pair allocated for sale in the state of California. So this knowledge, along with a composite sketch of Ramirez and the fact that the bullets left at the pan crime scene match those of the similar LA attacks, are convincing enough evidence for the police to believe that they're on the right track to finding their guy. So all these things are now starting to create a picture, which it, it would have been a very hard picture to, to develop. Like a etch sketch has been shaken, Ben. A televised faux pas by the current mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, alerts Ramirez to the fact that the authorities are onto him. They now know of and are on the hunt for an individual who wears this particular type of shoe. As a result, unsurprisingly, Ramirez ditches the sneakers, also known as trainers, and they're never to be worn again. That's a real fucking fuck up for Diane Feinstein. Yeah, massively. And I, I remember now, because this is a big part of the, the Netflix documentary as well, The Night Stalker, they are they are able to somehow ascertain that it's the black version as well of the trainer, which oh. is why there are even more like limited sales of that particular mm. make and size, because the white ones were far more common. But this is a massive slip up by her, and now he's potentially able just to ditch the shoes. It's 11.5 slip up. Well, it is, yeah. Thing. 24th of August 1985, Ramirez travels to Mission Viejo, some 76 miles south of LA on the night of the 24th of August. His first target is the house of James Romero. His family are tired and already in bed, as they have all just returned from a family holiday to Mexico. 13-year-old James Romero Jr. is unable to sleep, and whilst getting up to retrieve something he forgot to take from the car earlier during unpacking, he stumbles across Ramirez prowling through their property. Although startled, James Romero Jr. is able to think quickly and alert his parents of the predator on their property. They immediately call the police. James Jr. has been smart enough to note the style and the colour of the car Ramirez was driving, along with a partial number plate number. After aborting the attack on the Romeros, Ramirez, frustrated and angry, breaks into the home of Bill Carnes. Bill shares the house with his fiancée, Inez Erickson. The couple are sleeping soundly, and Ramirez follows his typical M.O., shooting Bill in the head before turning his attention to Inus. Inus is hideously raped and beaten by Ramirez and is physically forced to hand over any valuables the couple have in the house. Before leaving, Ramirez, full of evil arrogance, instructs Inus to tell them that the Night Stalker was here. Both Inus and Bill survive, which is a complete miracle, as Bill received three bullets to the head. I swear this case has so many people surviving getting shot in the head. Yeah. Is that down to the fact that They've been shot in certain parts of the head, or Ramirez was a poor shot. Was a shitty gun. Bad gun. I think we'd both say guns are bad. Guns, all guns are bad. Dan? Guns are very bad, so... Apart from the gun that Hitler used to take his own life. They probably used it on other people before. That's true. The 29th of August, 1985, in his hasty abandonment of the stolen car he's been using, Ramirez fails to wipe clean a single fingerprint. I mean, he's just been for the best in the fridge and bogged it all over the floor so DNA wise I guess it's not just bogged it did he though he also um, yeah togged it bopped it it is this fingerprint that solidifies Ramirez as the night stalker to the police 
Thanks to the information provided by 13-year-old James Romaro Jr., police are able to locate the stolen vehicle and after running the fingerprint through the system, Romero's profile comes up in connection to prior traffic and drug violations. Police now have their guy and then make the decision to broadcast Romero's mugshot on television, announcing, we know who you are now and soon everyone else will. Yeah, so at this point as well, the, the name, the night stalker, had been widely circulated. That, that was the one he wanted rather than Valley Intruder or the walking. Jack killer. the Knife, though. Jack the Knife, yeah, that's an interesting one. I don't know if there was a deeper meaning there. I was Googling. Is it Mac the Knife? Very briefly, yeah. Mac the Knife is the song, oh. which is apparently based on Jack the Ripper. Ooh. Mm. Interesting. It's all intertwined, isn't it? It is. It's like a cobweb yeah. of different information put it together a really happy spider <laughs> we, were, we earlier on we found a spider in here and turns out we're all don't really like spiders Dan was threatening to throw hot coffee at Ben if he threw the spider ben was, yeah Ben was threatening to throw the but spider ben was, I didn't threaten to be fair Ben <laughs> Ben was the hero in the situation because he actually yeah, got scooped the spider of spiders as well. it's a big but deal. Dan was like I'll throw hot coffee at you <laughs> and he was holding a butter knife in the other hand oh. I don't know where the knife came from it just, it just appeared <laughs> Dan the knife August 30th, 1985. Unaware that his photograph is all over the news, Ramirez nonchalantly catches a bus with the intention of visiting his brother in Tucson, Arizona. However, upon arrival, he discovers his brother is in fact not home and makes the decision to return to LA. Probably not the place to be going if... I mean, he's quite happily been going around all the different places in the US, going back to your main hunting ground. I know he's not aware about the, his picture being released, but... He seems to always gravitate towards LA for some mm. reason. Maybe he was on the lookout for more victims. August 31st, 1985. After arriving back in LA the next morning via a bus, Ramirez soon realises that he is a wanted man and can't avoid noticing his face is splashed all across the local newspapers. In a panic, he attempts to steal a car but is instantly recognised and chased down by an enraged group in the process. One man whacks Ramirez over the head with a pipe and a crowd are able to pin him down until the police arrive. It is reported that the arrival of the police actually saved Richard Ramirez's life, as he was being beaten so severely by the angry mob. The Night Stalker is captured and the reign of terror inflicted over LA and nearby San Francisco are brought to an end. Also, the man that apprehended Ramirez and beat him with the metal pole is a guy named Manuel de la Torre, and there's a photo of him. It's quite a common photo that pops up if you search Richard Ramirez's father but it's not Richard Ramirez, it's Manuel. And there's a photo of him with his family that was taken not long afterwards with him holding a bottle of champagne. And he just looks like the most unhappy man I've ever hold, seen hold a bottle of bubbly. The saddest man to hold a bottle of... It's like a line from the middle of the sky. I think she's the saddest girl to ever hold a martini. Apparently when he's running down the streets, there was quite a Spanish community around there, they were shouting El Matador, which translates to the killer. Yeah, it was quite a scene. People were start, slowly starting to clock who he was and he was, you know, finally feeling like trapped, running away, panicking. He wasn't as cool and calm and collected yeah. as he felt he was in other situations. So uh, There's lots of kind of aerial footage of the arrest and there were images of him being bandaged up in a police car, bandages to the head. But he, yeah, the angry mob beat him fairly, you know, significantly. Yes, yes, indeed. And for everything we haven't really spoken about, but he randomly <coughs> decided to stop any kind of dental hygiene. Yeah. And he just let his teeth kind of rot out. July 22nd, 1988. Fast forward three years later and the jury selection finally begins in the case of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. 
During his first court case, Ramirez draws a satanic pentagon on his hand, which he raises visible to the court and shouts out, Hail Satan. In the coming weeks, Ramirez does everything in his power to delay the start of his trial. He changes his legal counsel three times, and after initially confessing to all the crimes he is accused of, he backtracks and claims a case of mistaken identity. You would have thought, Hail and Satan's not going to help you, if you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm just a, I'm an innocent Satan worshipper. Someone thought it was me, but guys, hey... I love the guy downstairs, but don't get him the nick. <laughs> so even when the trial eventually does get underway, it is delayed further by a shocking murder of one of the jurors. Initially, Ramirez and the satanic worship are suspected of playing a part. However, it soon comes to light that Ramirez is not responsible and the murder has been committed by the juror's boyfriend at the time, who then goes on to commit suicide. So on the 20th of September, 1989... I was a month and a day. Years oh, old then. Yeah. are you making this? Years old. About you. So the 20th of September, 1989, Richard Ramirez is found guilty on all charges. He is accused of 13 counts of murder, 5 counts of attempted murder, 11 sexual assaults and 14 burglaries. He is sentenced to death by the state of California and sent to carry out his surviving years on death row. Upon sentencing, he is famously quoted as saying, no big deal, Death always comes with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. What does that even mean? Is that quite a... Um, Try-hard quote, I think. I think so, yeah. Is it a commentary on society in LA? No, I don't think it is, Ben. I um, think it's just some dipshit trying to say a quote. That sounds cool. He does come across like that mm. in uh, prison interviews with him. Mm. He comes across as putting a few words together and trying to sound a lot more intelligent than mm. he is. Which I can relate to. But yeah, no Especially big deal. All the no, none of the other oh, stuff, okay. just words. Just words. Um, no big deal. Death always comes with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. On the 7th of June 2013, Ramirez dies aged 53 in Marine General Hospital, Green Bay, California, after suffering complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma. So yeah, that's saw the end of Richard Ramirez. But yeah, as been mentioned, there's lots of interviews with him in prison. And he, yeah, he doesn't seem to have any... A real care in the world does he really he's not that bothered about the fact that he was caught as well one thing to note is he got a lot of admirers when he was in the, in oh, the courtroom so many. So many. he did have the appearance of some sort of rock star at the time you know the big hair the big shades and the suit skinny suit and yeah i think the whole edgy kind of satanism thing as well at the time there was sort of a counterculture movement across the country and he yeah he well even to today across the country pentagram the country maybe pentagram the country um yeah, but he's yeah still today got a devout following, hasn't he? He does. Well, not, maybe not a following. Admirers. Yeah. Because a following suggests that they're going to do his biddings. That's true. And they're not talking about your eBay. So we've got some interesting facts and some aftermath stuff to go into now. Ironically, the person that arrested Richard Ramirez was Officer Andy Ramirez. But there's no relation whatsoever. There you go. And I did make a little ACDC joke earlier on, but turns out that was all right for me to do because Ramirez dropped an ACD cap at one of the crime scenes and the band then were dragged into the serial killer's case by association. Brian Johnson was quoted as saying, it just sickens us, you know, you know, sickens you to have anything to do with that kind of thing. And then, yeah, apparently um, Ramirez was a big fan of the ACDC album, um, Highway to Hell. And then a lot of the links that has happened before with Marilyn Manson, people linking heavy music to being antichrist and Satanism and worship and things like that. But obviously the ACDC 
denied anything to do with that. During his uh, LA murders, Ramirez, we mentioned he, he was living around the Skid Row area, staying in different hotels. Ramirez stayed at the infamous Cecil Hotel during his summer crime spree. And the Cecil Hotel, of course, notable for the mysterious death of Elisa Lam. When he did stay there, he stayed on the particularly gruesome top floor. And before his capture and arrest, Ramirez was staying in a room on the top floor for $14 a night. After killing one of his final victims, he allegedly returned to the hotel, tossed his bloody clothing into the dumpster behind the hotel and made his way up to his room bloodied and naked. The, the way that he's captured as well in the um, documentary about Cecil Hotel, it's a really haunting way that they kind of included him in there. But the idea of him staying in there with everything else that went on in that hotel. Yeah, it's a very interesting building, isn't it? And all the yeah. stories that come with it. So as we mentioned, people becoming very infatuated with um, Ramirez and him gaining lots of fans during his high-level uh, court case. Doreen Leoy, a freelance journalist, became one of the many fans that Ramirez gathered after his high-profile arrest. The two became pen pals with a relationship turning romantic and eventually they got married at St. Quentin State Prison on October 3rd, 1996. So she maintained his innocence during their relationship and during the interview with CNN News, she was quoted as saying, he's kind, he's funny, he's charming. I think he's a really great person. He's my best friend. <laughs> He's my buddy. Uh, the two separated in 2009, reportedly because the DNA evidence that solidified Ramirez as the culprit in the 1984 murder of the nine-year-old Mei Lung. I mean, she's fine with all the other deaths. Yeah. And all the rape. But, but she had, you know, that's crossing the line. It just baffles me, the, the idea of going, he's lovely, he's, a, he's my buddy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. And that, that whole that whole fandom of, of serial killers we've had different we've covered different cases before whether mm. it was Elliot Rogers seemed to be the, the the one that got the most kind of sympathizers in the comment section but there have been sympathizers for almost every case we've covered which is bizarre in itself but one quote I saw regarding serial killers in general and this is an interesting way to kind of view the case uh, is, is by MD Albert Schweitzer what's done to children they do to the world Mm. what's done to children they do to the world so obviously those crucial years in the, in their childhood he's had almost everything yeah. imaginable go on it's, it's absolutely no excuse to do what you do the head injuries i i assume played a significant yeah. part in that multiple significant head injuries but he seemed to be aware of what he had done at the same time, you know, he's intentionally staking out the houses. He's trying to, to remain hidden in the darkness, showed no remorse for mm. what he did. He was quite arrogant in the courtrooms. He personally did things to disrupt the courtroom and yeah. delay things and just trying to cause mayhem. So uh, me mentioned May Lung. May was reportedly playing with her brother when she lost the dollar bill. The curious child went looking for it. And that, that's when it's assumed that Ramirez came across a little girl and lured her to the basement of the apartment complex where she lived. He then raped, murdered and strung her up to the basement pipe for someone to make the shocking discovery. May was just nine years old at the time of her death. So yeah, he wasn't actually yes. charged for that murder. And obviously the DNA uh, linked him to it later on. However, as a result of the evidence obtained in 2009, it's widely believed that Mei Lung was in fact the Night Stalker's first murder victim, as the atrocity took place in 1984, two months before the officially reported Summer of Terror. But the other thing about that is, if he's travelling about, yeah. you can't be sure that you know other people weren't crossing this path at the wrong time and stuff like that. It's, that's the crazy thing, especially with those times when you know, things weren't as well uh, documented in DNA and stuff like that. So yeah. 
And I mean, he was sentenced to death pretty much immediately, so he had nothing else to kind of bargain for I mean, mm. in, in admitting other victims. Just so the power, isn't it? Just him knowing, yeah. oh, they think this, that's bad. Well, all these other people that I've... So, yeah, as Tom said, I think he, he does come across in some of these interviews as, as one of the least intelligent serial killers that we've covered so far. And I think especially, I think he owes a lot to the fact that uh, the his victims were such a vast range in terms of age, gender, race, location, but also the method in which he killed them. I think he owes so much of that to the fact he wasn't caught quicker. Because mm. other than that, he was leaving footprints everywhere. He let people survive. He just seemed a bit a bit of a clutch. Brash, but then if he's thinking Satan's kind of guiding him and also That's got true. his back, because he felt with the head protection of Satan as well, which he kind of, if he truly believed that, maybe he thinks like, well, you know, I don't yeah. have to worry about these things, which is, again... That's true. Yeah, that's true. Ramirez infamously appeared on the Maury Povich show in 1991. And the clip I've seen of this, Maury basically froze to him. And Ramirez basically starts his appearance on the show by saying, I believe all humans have in them the capacity to commit murder. And the crowd basically start booing him before he can finish the first sentence. I'm just like, I don't think the Maury show was was the right vibe for him at all. I think the fact that all of this happened in just over a year, but... It really picked up in the summer of 85, didn't it? When it was just two days, three days, every other day. Yeah. I didn't know anything about that more clip. Yeah. It's, wow. He's being booed as if he's just failed a paternity test. <laughs> that the way is... that the crowd turn on him. Well, they, wow. they have every right to turn on him. I'm not, not sticking up for him at all. But it was just, it was just, yeah, very weird to see him on the Maury show. Um, Fair enough, on Montel, but Maury. About the ACDC hat, it's in. It's very much a focus of the uh, well, the initial build up in the Netflix series, The Night Stalker. There are loads of people on Reddit claiming, based on the fact that he wore an ACDC hat, there are some people on there claiming that it was their hat that he stole. Multiple people claiming that they encountered him whilst wearing the ACDC. Sure, many hat. people would have been. Yeah, he wasn't the first Night Stalker. So obviously, there's also then the original Night Stalker, Joseph James D'Angelo, who again, a similar kind of MO, lots of similarities between the two, but that will be a case for another day. Editors decided to dub the killer as the Night Stalker based on the 1972 TV movie and short-lived TV series about a Las Vegas newspaper reporter investigating a series of murders committed by a vampire. The judge who sentenced Ramirez to death remarked that his deeds exhibited cruelty, callousness and viciousness beyond any human understanding. On September the 3rd, 1985, less than a week after Ramirez uh, was arrested, Ramirez went to see a prison dentist and over a period of nine months, Dr. Alfred Otero, Otero BTK family, I wonder why that surname stood out, had repaired nine badly rotten teeth, filling them with a compound substance. Ramirez's dental hygiene was an issue starting at a very young age. The killer would start his day by drinking four cans of Coca-Cola and eating sugar-covered cereal. According to Ramirez's childhood friend and classmate Ray Garcia, he'd never brush his teeth. I used to tell him to close his mouth or brush his teeth. Close your mouth or brush teeth. We did a post about that. Very early on in the IGMAP days. And then finally, during his time in prison, Richard Ramirez hatched two secret plots to escape so that he could continue his murder spree. In 1993, while bringing Ramirez back to prison, a correction officer used a wand to scan the killer's body and the metal detector went off near his buttocks. A later x-ray revealed that Ramirez had stuffed a handcuff key inside his rectum along with a ballpoint pen, a syringe, and strangely... A sticker that read, 
I love chocolate. L-U-V chocolate. I love chocolate. Five years later, Ramirez received a bizarre letter from one of his lovesick groupies that alluded to helping him bust out of prison, but the San Quentin authorities caught wind of the plot and promptly cut off the groupies' access to Ramirez. And now it is time for our lookalikes. Ben, it's episode one of the new series. I know you said to me, Tom... Series 5, I'm sorry about my lookalikes. I'm going to go away and come back, really think these ones out, come back with really good ones. Not ones that, if you mix that person with that person. Yeah. I'm excited to see what you got. I haven't done any mixing this week. Cool. Some of them might annoy you. Uh, go on, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try not to be annoyed. So my first one, and I think this is being very, very kind to Ramirez, mm-hmm. uh, and this is based also on a picture of him not showing his teeth. I think he looks like Brandon Boyd, the lead singer of Incubus. That's mad. I literally just... Have you got it as well? I literally just Googled Incubus wow. singer. And that was... I didn't look at your notes. Yeah, it's a good one, that one. I think it's because he's... That Brandon there, Boyd's think, quite a handsome bloke. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's a handsome guy. But for some reason, I got that. But it's mainly the hair, isn't it? It's mainly the hair, yeah. And a little bit of maybe the face and nose and jaw. Mainly the hair, yeah. 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 Do you want to go with one of yours? I've got, I, I've got a few. If you do yours, mate. Going. We'll just go for yours. Um, well, this one is the one that probably might annoy you a little bit, but I feel like he could be any member of the band, The Strokes. Do you mean he could be any member? He just could be any of them. That doesn't make any sense, Ben. Well, look, he I'll did, show you. They don't they even look alike. I think he could be any of them. Do you mean he could be any of them? Look, no. They're different people. Could be. Be in the band, the Strokes. Yeah, but you can't. If you look at the Strokes, you, know, you can't go. All of them look exactly the same. He's got some features of each member of the Strokes. Okay, I think that's a terrible uh, shout. Lazy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is really annoying. Yeah, I've only. I haven't really properly started watching it yet. I will get into it. I promise. But it looks like he could be an older version of Mike from The Stranger Things. Yeah. <laughs> got my good one though. Go on then. I think he could be Alex Van Halen. That's a good one. Um, and again, it could have probably been any member of Van Halen, to be fair. No, it couldn't. Um, David Lee Roth. And then my... Don't think so, idiot. <laughs> one of my more niche ones, but I just get a vibe. I really feel like from the side, he looks just like the UFC fighter Nate Diaz. There's just a vibe I get. Mm, kind of see what you mean. Ramirez has a very um, 90s... Uh, PlayStation game pixelated face like it's very sharp corners and a badly graphics uh, game I feel I'm surprised you didn't get this one to well, be you honest you said you thought we'd have the same one yeah it was Incubus I literally thought of whilst doing the case then but I've gone for Ezra Miller of um yeah. we need to talk about Kevin yes that's very good but I think he just his intense way of playing I think he would be great at playing that role in, yeah. the, in the film anyway the one that's a bit more out there I think he looks like he could um, be um, play Spinelli's dad from Recess. Yeah. I know she's, she's just a bit naughty and a bit of a brute, which I mean, a bit probably unfair to Spinelli. Maybe he's an estranged yeah. father. But I remember being very shocked by the lady that plays Spinelli's voice. The lady that does Spinelli's voice. I remember yeah. seeing a clip of that. But I, li- I used to like Spinelli. And the girl that does Gretchen's voice, that's just her voice. Yeah. Which yeah. is because she was in um, What Women Want. She plays Mel Gibson's daughter. Yes, I'm like, yeah, Gretchen? Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I think, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by. A few of those. The I think the Incubus one is really weird that I Google that as well because I don't think it's one that I don't think it's an obvious link. I don't know what it was that maybe. No, it was as soon as I saw the mugshot image, I was like, "There's mm. something going on there." And yeah, maybe it is quite complimentary to. Um, oh, it definitely is to Ramirez because Brandon Boyd's a good-looking fella. 
My dad said uh, he look he feels like he looks like the singer of In Excess, and again, it's kind of a hair thing. It's very he's, yeah, very hair related. But yes, um, that is the case of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, uh, a big one to start the series with. I hope you enjoyed that. As we've said, there's plenty of big cases of this series. Ben said this is going to be the number one series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, stand by it. Stand by it. And a big thank you once again to our sponsors, Dead Happy, and to Gully Garms for kicking us out this series. Yeah. We've got some great, great outfits. Ben, I'm going to say rather than yeah. clothes, because it's to do with this, just to do attires. Attires. Uh, yeah, yeah, a wardrobe for the series to do with the particular cases. And don't forget to go onto their site and use the code Kill Ben or Kill Tom to get thirty percent off. And it's kind of a little bit of competition throughout the series. Yeah, I mean, if there. you wanted to get a couple of Garms, or if you, you know, you, you know. You wanted to, you know, buy something. They, they update their store every day, so there's loads of new gums. Maybe one week you kill Stop Tom. Stop saying gums. I hate it so much. Maybe one week you kill Tom, and I like the, the name next Gully week Gums. You kill Ben. You say balance gums. You can get some gums. Gums. Garmin. Perhaps um, my t-shirt is quite apt for that. Whose side are you on? Are you on? So yeah, pick a side, ladies and gentlemen. A big welcome on board to the ICMAC team, to Lauren McKenna-Parker, who's going to be looking after the timelines for the series. And a massive thank you, as always, to Phil Witten, at Phil Witts. Again, keeps raising the game. We've got, as well as his opening animations for the audio, guys, come and check us out on YouTube. Every episode is uh, accompanied by a video version of it. Loads of animations by Phil. He's also done some new transition animations for timelines and for looky-likes. Uh, and he's done a couple of moving stills to highlight certain elements of each case. Yeah. And he's drawn some amazing ones for future episodes yes yes can't wait to share with you guys if you're hungry for more content as well we have got almost 80 episodes over on our patreon page and next week will be our 50th main channel episode damn we hit the 50 we hit the 50 and also if you're hungry for merch like old jacob in the background there uh, why not go to our store icmac.store we've got plenty of garments on there and we're going to be restocking things but while this is coming out it might be restocked already and we're going to have new items on there sometime soon so please keep an eye on the store but obviously we'll be posting on our socials um, when they come out yeah and there's probably at some point this series going to be another audience vote we don't know when that will be yet but if you episode want 10, already it'll be episode 10 like probably episode is. 10 but let it surprise you episode uh, 10 10 weeks from now and if you're not already why not follow us on Instagram at couldmurderapod you can play your part in voting for the case you want to see covered this series we also have Twitter and Facebook lovely community on Facebook and TikTok and we also have a TikTok yes TikTok we are what give the TikTok <laughs> so yeah why not give us uh, a follow on Twitter Instagram Facebook or TikTok yeah over there uh, the socials working with um, Joe over on TikTok and he's been smashing it and some of them have got over a million views so how about that probably because it's it's very much containing our personalities and it's just literally talking about the facts but um, <laughs> there you go that's why you're over here but yes thank you very much guys for watching and listening and we'll be back again next week with a new case big big case in fact and until next time like we always say we say this all the time keep doing what you doing well if you've got a strange cousin called Mike, maybe you keep your distance. Mm. Yeah, and shrinking heads. Just don't drink. Hate in a pillow. Yeah. Uh, just use a normal pillow. Go forward. Imagine that little head. Oh. Get off got bed head. Head on a pillow. <laughs> head on a pillow. Head is a pillow. Bed head. Yeah. Dead head. Yeah. Um, All the joke. Oh guys. Two pip. All best. Sleeping in graveyards, that just... Mm. Whoa! Fucking hell.
I knew immediately what it was. Jacob fell over. I didn't hear it until I saw it. You didn't hear it until you saw it. And then you knew it was Jacob because you could actually see it. It's unnecessary. Let's get the shit out of me. <laughs> Did I get you back? You, yeah. Did I get you back? You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast. Written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter. Produced and mixed by Dan Lambert at Boston Sound. Edited by Ben Bonsey. Additional research and timelines by Lauren McKenna-Parker. Artwork and animation by Phil Witten. And theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on Apple Music and Spotify. For additional exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com couldmurderapod. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the Acast Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.